I am deeply grateful to be here. Uh, I want to thank Russell for this opportunity to kind of flex my preaching muscles a little bit, uh, help develop my preaching language, as they like to say in seminary. Uh, It's always a little risky to ask a seminary student to preach, because you're never quite sure what you're going to get. So I hope uh, that you get something worthwhile today. It's also fitting, because Vintage Grace has been my home, and will always, in some ways, be my home. Uh, The investment that you have made in my life, I can't... I can never hope to repay, truly. Uh, I thought it was important to leave with that as, as we begin looking at our text for this morning. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to visit some friends up in North Carolina, and it was great because not only uh, did I get to spend time with them, but I got to spend time with their children, who I'm kind of a big brother and an uncle to. Uh, it's especially good to see their youngest son, uh, who they adopted several years ago from overseas out of a really traumatic circumstance. Uh, and who is probably the most boisterous and full of life little boy that I've ever met. Uh, But as sweet and and warm as he is, it can be difficult to witness those moments that are all too common for children like him who have been rescued out of really traumatic circumstances. To watch as he struggles to allow his parents to leave for work because he's frightened they won't come back. Or to observe this underlying sense of loss and grief in all of his tantrums for a parent's and a life that his mind doesn't remember, but his body does. These tragic patterns that he developed in his old life are not dying easily, even in light of his new one. And as badly as his parents probably wish to communicate to him that he doesn't have to be afraid anymore, to assure him that he's been brought out of the darkness of his past and raised up into new life, I think that they understand that it's going to take a great deal of work for him to really accept and embrace his place in their family and to live out of that identity. Well, even as my friend's little boy is going to have to set his mind, to adjust his mind to be like that of a true son of his new family, so also the Apostle Paul in our passage today is urging God's people to live out of their new place in the family of God, raised with Christ and hidden with him. And what a struggle this is, right? The reality is that human beings are a mess of self-gratification and woundedness and lust and pride and idolatry. And even as Christians, we're not yet restored to a state of being unaffected by the law of sin, as Paul calls it in Romans 7. Our selves are still bent towards a worldly way of thinking. We might call this worldly-mindedness, which Paul spends a great deal of time in this letter contrasting with what I like to call heavenly-mindedness. This is the tension of the Christian life, to be spiritually raised with Christ and yet to remain in a fallen world with disordered, bent desires. So I want you to see today that God's people, us, we are prone to worldly-mindedness, persisting in our old, deathly habits and vices. And I want to take a minute, just briefly, to be really honest with ourselves, okay? Because not a single person in this room remains unaffected by this worldly-mindedness. Think about that person that you look at with burning lust in your heart. Or what about the anger 
that you have toward your spouse for not meeting your expectations? How about the lies that you tell or the sins that you hold secret to your heart that you carry around like a burden everywhere you go? We are each of us so easily caught up in these dry, earthly ways. Now, if this idea of worldly-mindedness resonates with you, if you're sitting there maybe thinking, like discouraged, thinking, that's me. Well, I have good news for you. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul breaks the spell. He rips the blinds out from in front of our eyes, and he announces that for all of those who have believed in Christ, who have joined with him in death, I want you to think here of baptism, these, these people have been supernaturally raised, spiritually raised with him. If you are in Christ, then hear these words. You are alive. Believers in Christ are secure, hidden with Christ. And because we who have believed in Christ are hidden with Christ, let us live out of that heavenly mindset in every aspect of our earthly lives. Now, how does this work? Let's get practical. How do we go about adopting this way of thinking? Well, I invite you to join with me in seeing today's text and seeing here three ways by which a heavenly mindset is lived out in the lives of the people of God. All right, three ways in which a heavenly mindset is lived out in the lives of the people of God. The first way, let's begin with the first way. It's taken from verses 1 through 4, and it is this. Because God's people are hidden with Christ, let us embody the heavenly. Let us embody the heavenly. Now, you might have noticed that Paul opens his text here with a carefully worded statement. If, then, you have been raised with Christ... This is a clue, and now if you've done any Bible study before, you might have heard, if you ever see a therefore in Scripture, uh, you got to see what it's there for. you got to kind of go back and see what's, what's being unpacked. It's kind of the same thing here. This is a clue that it's important for the sake of what's to come to very briefly recap where Paul has been bringing his readers so far. So it's helpful to remember that Paul's writing to a group of Christians who have been in danger of allowing themselves to be subjected to this false teaching, this ascetic hollow religiosity, a sort of performance-based Christianity that I'm sure all of us can relate to. The first two chapters of Colossians, of this letter, contain these astounding truths and warm encouragements that Paul has written, hoping, hoping to remind the Colossians of Christ's preeminence and his deity, as well as of his marvelous saving work for them. In all of this, he's writing to combat this wretched, crippling Christianity that's threatening the church in Colossae. Then in chapter 2, Paul pulls the rug out from underneath this uh, false gospel, and from any false gospel, really, that might be overshadowing the hearts of the Colossians. Verse 13 of chapter 2 says, You, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, Nailing our record of sin to the cross. Do you get that? The dead are now alive. That's the gospel. On the cross of Jesus Christ, who loved us with a love that rent the cosmos, our sins were nailed through the hands and feet of the Son of God, that wonderful, gentle, ferocious man 
our God, died. But he didn't stay dead. Because after three days, the grave that they tried to put him in burst open, and our Savior emerged victorious over sin and death. And not only that, okay, there's more. In baptism, those who believe in him are buried and raised with him. That'll preach. So having soaked in these riches of the last two chapters, feeling the weight of that glory, I hope that you hear the power behind Paul's simple words, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now what's the practical outworking of this resurrection? What does it actually look like you know, in real day-to-day life to embody the heavenly in light of what Christ has done? Well, we're given two commands here that I think help us towards this goal. The first command Paul gives us is to seek the things that are above. The Colossians reading this, and we today might hear this and miss the stark contrast that's being made between the earthly religion that Paul's talking about in chapter 2 and the heavenly thinking of chapter 3. So what does Paul mean by seek? He's trying to say here that Christians shouldn't focus on earthly rituals or religion or rules or regulations And instead, we are to pursue the true heavenly things. We are to seek to live out the primary characteristics of the life that Jesus has in heaven with God at his right hand. But what are these heavenly things? What's the character of that? Well, at the risk of jumping too far ahead of myself, Paul lays these out for us in verse 12 of chapter 3 that Russell was kind enough to read to us. Uh, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. In other words, we are to actively aim to live out of the self-giving love that Christ has already demonstrated for us and which flows from the life that he shares in heaven with God right now. And yet, seeking these heavenly things is not enough for Paul. Okay, It might be easy for us to say, because if you notice, he says, seek the things that are above, Then he says, set your mind on heavenly things. And it might be easy for us to say that Paul's just repeating himself here. But it's actually more than that. Paul doesn't just restate himself. He's actually using a different word entirely to elevate his idea. Okay, so hear what he says. And I want you to notice the difference. Not only are we to seek heavenly things, we are also to set our minds on the things that are above. That small change makes a really important difference. Because the two expressions are very similar, and they do share the same focus. But Paul takes this command to seek just one step forward. He says it's not enough to only think, I'm sorry, to seek heaven. We've got to think heaven too, to use J.B. Lightfoot's phrasing. There is a difference though, right? Because the word here that Paul uses means more than just making it our goal to behave in a more loving way. Paul wants our minds to be affected. The lens through which we see everything, our whole attitude and outlook, ought to be informed and transformed from the ground up by the reality of heaven. Absolutely, seek to act lovingly and kindly. Seek to forgive and to live in harmony with others. But let this be lived out by concentrating your mind on the life of Jesus. You guys might notice that I wear glasses. If you've known me for very long, which most of you have, 
you know, that I've always worn glasses. And there's a really simple explanation for this. I'm blind, right? I can't see anything at all. Uh, thank goodness for glasses, because I wouldn't even be able to read my sermon notes if it weren't for them. It, uh, I remember my first pair of glasses. It had gotten to the point at school where even trying to see the chalkboard, which you guys remember chalkboards? Those don't really exist anymore. But uh, it, to see it was just impossible. And so finally, after complaining nonstop, I was finally taken to the optometrist. And I will never forget putting on those glasses for the first time. All of a sudden, my entire world was changed. I looked through these lenses, and where once I just saw a greenish blur, I actually found, I found myself seeing individual leaves. I remember feeling so giddy. My world was finally given definition. I, it was one thing to seek a doctor for my eyes so that he could write me a prescription, tell me what to do, and that I could get a pair of glasses. But it was another thing entirely to actually put those glasses in front of my eyes so that through them I could see. I think C.S. Lewis captures it well when he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This will change how we see everything. When we really get this, when we embody the heavenly things in our earthly lives, when we have a heavenly mindset, a gospel-drenched mindset, suddenly how we go about every moment of our day is affected. From things as mundane as how you speak to your barista in the morning as she gives you your coffee, to things as important as how you vote. These things are so affected. Because hear this, Paul says that the Christian's, the Christian's life is hidden with Christ. Now this idea of being hidden with Christ deserves so much more time than I could give it here. But I want you to think about it for just a second. As Christians right now, we can't see Christ, right? Not with our eyes. He's not physically present. His glory, his beauty is hidden. He's hidden from us. But he won't be hidden forever. The hope is that he'll appear one day, and that in that day we will finally become who God always intended us to be. The hidden you the hidden you will appear with him in glory. Now, until then, we're told to seek and to set our minds on the things of heaven. Christian, please do not be cheated out of the abundant joy that comes from embodying the heavenly. How might life change if you really took this to heart? How might your soul rest by your living out of kindness and forgiveness towards the person who's wronged you or hurt you? What might become of your marriage if you bore with patience the failures of your spouse instead of harboring this bitterness and this life-stealing resentment towards them? Or what might become of a community in which the people of God lived in harmony with themselves and others instead of lashing out in fear and frustration when we feel like we've been wronged or even just disagreed with? Surely Jesus has freed us from these earthly attitudes and these earthly behaviors. He has lovingly shown us a better way, a new way. And I urge you, with Paul, to embody this heavenly mindset and watch as it radically alters how you see and do everything. Well, not only are we to embody the heavenly, but secondly, because God's people are hidden with Christ, let us eliminate the earthly. Eliminate the earthly. 
Now, this is where things start to get really practical. Remember that earthly religion that I was speaking about before that Paul was referencing in chapter 2? He's fighting that religion uh, by writing this letter to the Colossians. Well, here's the thing about that earthly religion. It's not really enough, that earthly religion is not enough to actually kill the part of us, the whole part of us that needs to be killed, the whole man. It might change our outer behaviors for a, for a while, sure, I'll give you that. But inwardly, things will be as bad as ever. And what about for the Christian? Don't forget, we have been made alive again with Christ. We've been given a new heavenly nature. There's absolutely no room for our old earthly selves anymore in this new heavenly mindset. And so propelled by this mindset that we're now embodying, Paul gives us two lists of sins to eliminate, to kill, to mortify. And now lots have been said about the significance of these two lists. Uh, and for today, you might say that the first list is a list of outer, I'm sorry, of inner sins, sins that we've experienced inside of ourselves. And then the second list is a list of outer sins or ones that affect relationships. So let's start with the list of inner sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's worth noting that Paul is writing to a people who were living at the height of the Roman Empire, which in many ways, in many parts, was famous for its liberal sexual indulgence and practices. So it's not a surprise, really, that Paul begins his list with sexual immorality, the sin against the self. And in fact, a lot of these sins, I'd say really all of these sins, carry with them some sexual undertones. And this, can be, this would be of special significance for the Colossians who lived in the Roman Empire, even as it's significant for us, right, who live in the United States. Because who among us hasn't felt this constant pull of sexual temptation and passion in this sexualized culture? But the list doesn't stop just at sexual immorality. Paul also touches on covetousness. Covetousness. He calls it idolatry. We are told, as Americans, we're told from a young age to always be seeking bigger and better, right? Especially bigger and better than what my neighbor has, right? We always want something bigger and better, especially if that bigger and better is something bigger and better than what my neighbor has. So when someone else, when one of our neighbors does get something bitter, bigger and better than us, we just desire what they have, and then to, to kind of push past it, to go beyond it. This desire to, to get and to keep stuff is just really me saying, I don't trust God that he's going to give me good things. This desire to get and to keep stuff is just a lack of trust in God. And all of these sins that Paul's mentioning here, these have serious consequences, God hates them. His wrath is coming because of them. And what's even more alarming, we've walked in them. We have walked in them too. Of course, Paul is going to urge us to put these earthly desires to death. But not only does Paul address inward sins, he addresses outer sins as well, or sins that affect the unity of God's people. Anger and wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lies. These sins rip apart relationships. How damaging it is to the body of Christ that he loves when we walk in anger towards one another over things that are so small and petty. 
the style of worship or, I don't know, the person that we vote for, the way that we in the church speak about one another, you begin to see why Paul was so passionate to communicate this message to the Colossians. The way we've lied to one another or harbored anger or spoken evil about one another. Paul says, no, you must not do these things. It's not who you are anymore. Well, at the end of the section, Paul introduces this idea of the old self in conflict with the new self. We've already mentioned this before, this concept of putting to death the earthly in us and embodying the heavenly. Christians, he says, are occupied with warring selves. We have our old ways of living, the earthly ways, and then we have our new ways of living, the heavenly ways, old self and new self, combating each other all the time. And here, Paul sort of assumes that we've, we've kind of understood this, that we've gotten rid or are getting rid of our old selves, that we've taken on our new selves. And on the one hand, we do. We live in a fallen world with fallen bodies and fallen relationships. But I think Paul here removes any excuse that we might have or have had because we are in the process of being renewed after the image of our creator. I think this points backwards even to the very beginning of the Bible when Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. It's like Paul is saying at the first creation, man was made alive, he was breathed into in the image of God and we messed it up. But now God is in the process of recreation, remaking man who had broken that image of creation and is now being restored to it. And this this process of restoration is just that, okay? It's a process. We are not yet renewed and completely out from under the power of sin. We are being renewed. There's this tension that Paul was naming here between the old self, which we've put off, and this new self that we put on, between the earthly mindset and the heavenly mindset. And I wonder how you react to this. How does your heart respond to these two lists of inner and outer sins? Did you hear the words sexual immorality and wince because you recognize it? So many of God's people are caught in the chains of sexual immorality and feel as if there's no way out. Or is your anger uncontrollable? Are your closest relationships affected by that anger? There's probably, there's likely someone listening to this thinking, these words are for me. But you still hear that same voice, that same old voice that's whispering to you that you're a hopeless case, right? That repeated failure after repeated failure shows that there's just no way to actually kill your sin. There's just no hope. Not for me. But listen to me. That voice is lying to you. There is a way. His name is Jesus. He is renewing the image of God in you little bit by little bit. He has made you alive and new. And he has promised to give you power to participate in that renewal by eliminating the earthly. Well, we've seen that because God's people are hidden with Christ, we should embody the heavenly. We should eliminate the earthly. And finally, we should embrace our unity. We should embrace our unity. In our final verse, Paul shows us the astounding final product of living out of a heavenly mindset. And I want you to brace yourselves because this is incredible. 
Paul gives us another list. I think he really likes lists. But it's important to see what's happening in this list. Because for us today, it might not be as abundantly clear as it would have been to a Colossian. Paul is being remarkably countercultural and progressive here. So we know that in the early church, there was this great debate over a distinction between the Jewish Christians and the Greek Christians, right? Whether or not circumcision was required to follow Jesus. Well, Paul says that, disti- that distinction is meaningless now. Or this idea of the civilized versus the uncivilized mind. Because to a Roman, to a Roman citizen, there were kind of two kinds of people. There were Romans, and then there were non-Romans, who they like to call barbarians. And then in the midst of the barbarians, who were really bad, you've got Scythians, who were even worse than the barbarians. They're like the worst of the worst. And Paul's saying, nope, that distinction's gone too. And finally, the distinction of slave and free, which certainly resonates with us today. That distinction is eradicated. What Paul is saying in this is that when the people of God live out of a heavenly mindset, something incredible happens. We begin to find that what used to set us apart from one another becomes irrelevant now that we are in Christ. These earthly distinctions are set aside in light of the truth that we're all in desperate need of Jesus. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. And Jesus freely gives himself to all who are found there. This is huge. In a day like ours, when our country, or even more tragically, our church, is more divided than we have ever been over both important and maybe not so important issues, yet God's word to us is that if for we who have died and have been raised with Christ, what threatens to divide us falls over powerless at our feet. Here, the Greek, the Jew, the the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the civilized, the uncivilized, the rich, the poor, the Republican, the Democrat, the powerful, the weak, the men, the women, the black, and the white join hands under the banner of our King Jesus. And notice with me that last phrase. But Christ is all and in all. Remember, if you will, the transcendent statements that Paul made just two chapters ago in Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, it was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the heavenly mindset that we are meant to have, which will put to death our old selves and unite all creation under him. Paul refuses to let us forget that Jesus is not simply a side dish or a third wheel. He is everything. He is the centerpiece around which the whole of our faith revolves. When we talk about this heavenly mindset, we've got to remember That it is Christ himself that makes it heavenly in the first place. It's around Christ that we are all going to gather as one for his fame and our good. Because God's people are hidden with Christ. Let us embrace our unity. How should we walk away from this text? We've seen 
that because we who have believed in Christ are hidden with Christ, we should live out of a heavenly mindset in every aspect of our earthly lives. We are to do this by embodying the heavenly, by eliminating the earthly, and by embracing our unity. But we do all of this truly and ultimately because Jesus is in us, making us alive, and killing our old selves and uniting us all together. Well, as we conclude, I'd encourage you to consider your own life. Maybe you've never really understood what it means to embody heavenly things. You've heard me today, and your heart is sad because you think, that's never been me. I want you to know that Jesus is inviting you into a deeper and more rich relationship with him as you seek and set your mind on the things that are found in heaven with God. Like my friends in North Carolina and their little boy, our Father wants you to see and live more fully from who you are, his child, his adopted child. Now, practically speaking, this could look a number of different ways. It might mean stopping for the homeless man that you see on your way home. Or it might mean forgiving the person in your family that deeply hurt you. Or maybe today, the Lord might be encouraging you to eliminate the earthly in your life. Jesus would have you kill your covetous desire for the prestige or possessions of your neighbor. He would have you mortify your broken desires that cause you to use the opposite sex in lust or in pornography instead of cherishing them as fellow children of God. Whatever it might be, our Lord is urging you to remove every obstacle to living out of your new self and not your old. Maybe God's calling you to embrace the unity made possible by the gospel. We're living in such a charged time, and what divides us is as strong as ever, whether it be race or social class or political party, theological tradition or gender. But the ground is even at the foot of the cross. God might be calling you to step out of your comfort zone and pursue deeper relationships with those that are different than you. Here, there's no distinction. At the foot of the cross, Christ is what matters most. Now, I realize I'm in a church setting and that most of you have, I'm confident, heard the gospel before. But there's always a chance that, the, that something I've said today is foreign to you. That maybe you're hearing my words, you're hearing God's words as a hungry orphan who's never really known a relationship with Jesus. You feel lost and tired. I want you to know that your being here is not an accident. Jesus eagerly desires for you to know him. He wants you to be part of his family too. And if you have questions or if you need to talk to somebody, please don't leave here today without speaking to Russell or myself or somebody. But I want to close, finally, with a quote from a man named Carlos Ear, whose words, I think, really beautifully capture like what it means to live out of a heavenly mindset, to see the world in a new way. Whether you're a Christian or not, he's describing his conversion, and I think he gets at what it means to see this world anew through the lens of Christ. Everything changes, top to bottom. A veil rips loudly and light pours through, and nothing looks the same. It's close to Easter. My mind is reeling, and so is my heart my will. I'm in bizarro world now where everything's the opposite of what it should be. 
I'm no longer who I was just two months before, and neither is the world itself. Jagged is smooth, bitter is sweet, sorrow is joy, dark is light, black is white. The unseen illumines what's seen. Absurdity rescues logic. Love of self leads to anguish. Praying becomes the only conversation that makes sense. Believing becomes as natural and unstoppable as breathing. Doubting becomes as unsurprising as exhaling. Forgiving becomes the only sensible option. Temptation drops its mask. Remorse claims its crown. Loss loses its sting. Pain gains its wings. Now becomes forever. Forever begins now. May forever begin for all of us now. Let's pray together. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, our Father, for the gift of your life and your light. You've illuminated our minds and you've illuminated our hearts to see you and by you see everything else. Thank you that you've raised us up into new life with your son, Jesus. Jesus, help us to put our old life to death. And thank you for the spirit that unites us all together and that breaks down unbreakable walls. Thank you, almighty, everlasting, and eternal God. To you be all honor and all dominion and glory. Amen. So being heavenly-minded is being transformed by a truth. A truth of what God has done for us in Christ. And in Colossians 1 here, 